0: From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Maliheira Razazan. The European Green Deal is the European Union's roadmap to making the bloc climate neutral by 2050. And the Sahara Desert in North Africa has been presented as the perfect place to exploit the power of the wind and the sun to produce green hydrogen, which has been promoted as the fuel of the future to reach that goal. But Europe's transition to green energy is not as green as one might think. Our today's guest, Hamza Hamushan, argues that the search for clean energy has resulted in the plunder of local resources, dispossession of communities, environmental damage, and entrenchment of corrupt elites in North Africa. He says, the case of Morocco provides insight into, quote, green grabbing and, quote, green colonialism within North Africa through transition to renewable energy. While energy grabbing refers to some of the dynamics of land grabs that takes place within a supposedly green agenda, green colonialism points to the extension of colonial relations of plunder and dispossession to the green era. He says the same oppressive systems remain but with a different source of energy, from fossil fuels to renewable energies, while all the political, economic, and social structures that generate inequality, impoverishment, and dispossession remain untouched. Hamza Homoshin is a London-based Algerian researcher, activist, and commentator and a founding member of Algerian Solidarity Campaign and Environmental Justice North Africa. He is the author of The Coming Revolution to North Africa, The Struggle for Climate Justice. I spoke with Hamza about the significance of North Africa in Europe's plan to reach its carbon-neutral status by 2050.
1: First of all, I think one thing that we need to highlight is that the idea that North Africa or the Arab region in general would be providers of renewable energy to Europe is not new. It has been there for some time now, I would say maybe for for two decades. So the North African region or the Arab region in general is seen to be endowed with a huge solar and wind potential. And of course, let's not forget a cheap labor force that can produce cheap electricity that could be transported to Europe. The first time that I came across this idea is through the Desert Tech project, a venture, a European venture that has been launched in 2009 claiming that a small surface of the desert in North Africa could produce up to 15 or 20 percent of uh, Europeans' energy needs. And there was a kind of a map or picture showing North Africa, showing like small surfaces, small squares in the deserts and saying this much would produce this much to be exported towards Europe.
0: Specifically, from what I understand, this refers to a study that said 8% of the desert can potentially provide energy for the whole world.
1: Exact. That's the study. And I think it's based on a dissertation by a German student. And I wrote about this back in 2014, 2015, highlighting this idea that the desert is empty. And it can be used or resourced to produce energy for export. This is based on a colonial narrative, the land without people in it. And we need to go and use our technology and our know-how to create some kind of value from it.
0: And Europeans have used these terms unproductive, useless areas. And this is the best use of a place
1: that is just... Barren. This has been the colonial narrative, at least in the Maghreb countries, Algeria, Tunisia and Morocco. The French came to improve the environment, to make it valuable because the local people have been destructive or because the land has been left barren without use. And this narrative continues to today and it is being used by the local ruling classes as well. And it is being used in reports and studies by international financial institutions like the World Bank. So the World Bank, when it's making an environmental assessment for such projects in Morocco, in other countries, it uses this narrative that the land is empty and using it for such big mega projects is not gonna generate negative impacts on local populations because there are no local populations. And that land is not being used for other economic activities, which is of course a lie, which is also a deception. And that narrative, we need to challenge it because it's not just wrong, but it maintains the same relations of dominations, the same neo-colonial relations of power. So the North African countries continue providing cheap natural resources, including sun power, including renewable energy, to be exported to Europe. And whenever you look at the manifestos, the brief policies coming either from Europe, EU agencies or from other European think tanks, the priority is always European energy security. It's always Europe needs to meet its carbon cut emissions targets. So, what can it do that? And it's always looking at the peripheries, North Africa or maybe Eastern, Eastern Europe, to do this kind of stuff. I just wanted to highlight this. So, this is not a new idea. It continues, it has been like this, either with fossil fuels. And now we are when we are moving to the renewable energy era or to the green period, we seem like to be seeing the same kind of neocolonial practices of dispossession, of domination, of providing for Europe and forgetting about the negative socioeconomic and environmental costs of those projects.
0: What you say is very familiar because we have seen the same colonial pattern and relationships with the old and existing fossil fuel extractive resources. And now we see the same patterns being reproduced this time in the name of fighting climate crisis. Let's go back and see how Europe is planning Mm -hmm. to accomplish this goal of becoming carbon neutral. In 2009, the Desert Tech Project Initiative to Power Europe from Sahara solar plants was launched by coalition of European business and and financial institutions, as you said, with the idea that sunny landscape in the Sahara can provide 15% of Europe's electricity via special high voltage direct current transmission cables. Can you talk about the genesis of this project? The first attempt failed.
1: So in 2009, it started as a venture between European companies, business people, there were academics, there were lobbies, thinking that making big renewable projects in North Africa and providing for Europe is a good idea. They started lobbying for it in Europe and in North Africa as well. So they approached various countries in the North African region, not just in the North African region, by the way, in the Arab region as a whole. So they approached countries as well in the Middle East. But then the idea was purely about export. In 2009, like openly, they are saying we're going to build all these mega solar projects or wind farms and use those high voltage cables under the Mediterranean to export this energy directly to Europe. So the that, that, that idea has failed for various reasons, including It's astronomical costs back then. And they couldn't convince enough companies and enough European governments and North African governments to jump on this. And because it has been criticized as well from countries in the region, from civil societies, from activists, from intellectuals, saying this is a new colonial venture. We are seeing again these companies and this European come into our lands. They are using it. To satisfy their needs without any economic benefits for the region. So that was Desertech 1.0. And then Desertech tried to rebrand itself to circumvent the criticism regarding the export agenda by including some local demands, saying we're gonna create employment in the region that would facilitate local development, but it didn't get too much tracked back then. Now, it's it rebranded itself because the discussion around climate change and the energy transition has become quite mainstream. We hear it in mainstream media, we hear it in, you know, the narrative and the discourses of political decision makers. So it's seen as an opportunity especially that the EU uh, is publishing its plans to move towards it. Now Desertec decided to go into green hydrogen.
0: So it started with providing electricity and then it expanded into hydrogen, green hydrogen.
1: Green hydrogen, because they saw that the European Union published its um, hydrogen strategy in 2020 within the framework of, you mentioned, the European Green Deal. They thought that's a possibility to give a new lease of life to desert tech by jumping on the bandwagon of green hydrogen. Green hydrogen is produced by the electrolysis of the molecule of water, basically breaking the molecule of water into oxygen and hydrogen. That reaction, that chemical reaction, needs to be powered by energy. If you use green energy, coming from solar or wind, that process is clean. That's why it, they call it a green hydrogen. Hydrogen is produced in other forms. Uh, you have gray hydrogen that is produced from methane gas, and this is polluting, it emits emit CO2. And if you can capture and bury, sequester the emissions, it becomes blue hydrogen. So for now, the majority Of the hydrogen produced right now, around 98% of the hydrogen produced is gray hydrogen, which is polluting. So it's only a tiny, tiny minority that is green hydrogen. Actually, it's less than 1%. So the idea to jump to, to be producing most of the hydrogen from green and renewable sources in two decades, I think it's just a pipe dream. There are a lot of research that has been done around this. They say it's quite impossible to do that in two decades because the ambitions is to do it in 2040, 2050, we're going to reach a production of more than 51% of green hydrogen. So the criticism that comes towards all this propaganda around green hydrogen is who's behind that? The question is who's behind this? And you look at the lobbies, that are pushing for this, at least at the European level. You have green hydrogen. It's a big lobby that represents industry. You look at who's behind that. You find oil and gas companies. You find companies like Shell, companies like Total. And you wonder, why are these companies behind such green agenda? Because they know that if you jump on this, they're going to continue producing oil and gas, producing maybe what they call blue hydrogen, if they can manage to um, engineer the right technology to capture the CO2 emission. For now, that technology is not reliable, so probably they're going to produce gray hydrogen, the most polluting form of hydrogen, and using the current infrastructure. because exactly. that's the
0: current pipelines, yeah.
1: Exactly. That's what Desert Tech and other lobbies like Green Hydrogen and even the European Union are relying on. They are saying we're going to use the current pipelines linking North Africa to Europe. The current pipelines transport natural gas, methane. And when I was digging into this, I realized that those pipelines cannot be repurposed to transport 100% hydrogen. I think chemically and the material of those pipelines cannot do that. So if they want to transport hydrogen, they need to transport it with methane, with natural gas. So which means the continuation of the production of gas, which is a new lease of life of companies like Shell and Total, to continue exploiting and drilling for gas.
0: Hamza, even the whole technology of carbon capture is overrated and hyped.
1: Yeah, it is high. It's not reliable. For now, there are no technology that could claim that we can do it with higher and higher efficiency. So all of this is based just on assumptions. And they put this into beautiful words. They tell you, ah, we could do this. um, We could capture it. But you don't have right now the technology. And even the pipelines that you're talking about, you cannot transport Hydrogen at 100%. So either you build new pipelines, which would be hugely costly, or you continue producing gas and claim that you're using this carbon capture and sequestration technology. So for me, as for others who looked into this, we think it's just a big deception. It's given like a second lease of life for oil and gas companies to continue exploiting gas and oil, and that's why we are jumping on this and uh, and supporting it.
0: You argue that the North African energy projects created with European support in the last decade already show how energy colonialism is reproducing, even in the transition processes as you spoke, about earlier, to renewable energy, taking the form of ecological colonialism or green grabbing. So let's focus on two particular geographies, Morocco and Tunisia. First, let's go to Morocco. Wizazet Solar Power Complex, also referred to as NOR, was launched in 2016, just before the Marrakesh climate talks, COP22. It is the largest concentrated solar power plant in the world, the size of 3,500 soccer fields on the edge of Sahara. These are high cost and capital intensive projects, whether the one in Morocco, Tunisia or anywhere else. So let's talk about the NOR complex. Who initiated it? Where did the money come from? Who owns it? So let's start with that and then talk about the impact of the construction of this huge complex on the local communities yes. and its environmental impact, of course.
1: It's always good to go into the concrete to give examples of what we mean by concepts like energy colonialism. Or green colonialism and and green grabbing because with these examples with concrete examples you realize that what is being promoted as green renewable and beautiful is just something else i think we need to look always at the materiality of these projects the game scratch under the surface see what's happening because under Words like green and renewable, maybe you see an ugly world. (laughs) You see exploitation, you see robbery. One example is is Warzazet, as you mentioned. So Warzazet is um, a touristic region in southeastern Morocco. Actually, I love it. It's still a semi-arid region. It's um, a door to the desert, you could say. And it's known for the place where Hollywood goes to make its film productions. So a lot of films... Well-known films have been, at least some scenes of them have been- Including uh, Lawrence of Arabia. Yes, they've been filmed in uh, in that area, in Wazizem. So that solar plant, as you said, has been launched in 2016, just before the climate talks that Morocco hosted in Marrakech. In November 2016, and actually I was there in the climate talks, at least in the civil space, not inside. I didn't go to inside official negotiations. And then at the time, it was touted as being the biggest solar plant of the world. And the Moroccan monarchy was positioning itself as the champion of renewable energy because the project was so big, over 3,000 hectares of land, with so many panels and in the region you compare with other countries it was yeah it was a big big project a mega project mega solar project but then when you start looking at the details of the project and how it came about you see another picture first of all before i go into the details that project was backed by the desert tech initiative so the desert tech people were backing they liked that project they gave it political support and, and so forth But who owns the project? The king, the Moroccan monarchy, has a stake in this. Actually, the king has a stake in almost every economic sector in Morocco. So they have a stake in the renewable sector, not just solar, but wind as well. It's operated by private companies. At the time, it was Aqua, a Saudi company from Saudi Arabia. And the project contracted more than $9 billion of debts from the World Bank, from the African Development Bank, and from other European banks. And these come with guarantee from the Moroccan government. If the project fails or it doesn't generate profit, it's the Moroccans themselves who would be paying back those debts.
0: So how much money did the Europeans put in?
1: To be honest, I I don't remember the exact details, Mm -hmm. but I know that the total, it's in the billions for sure, because the majority is coming from the uh, World Bank and the African Development Bank, but the European puts billions of dollars. That project is not exporting yet. There is talk that if it becomes solid and it succeeds and it produces energy at cheap costs, It would be exported, but for now, it is not exported.
0: What were the initial intentions to produce electricity for domestic use?
1: For domestic use and for export. That was the intention. Like like it was clear from the start that at least that was the And Morocco jumped on this because they don't have oil and gas resources like uh, its neighbors. So it relies completely on imports of oil and gas. So for them, it is a strategic project to invest in that. But then they say, we're gonna produce for the local market and eventually for export. 2022, six years down the line, the project is losing money, is in deficit. It's producing electricity at a high cost And the Moroccan government is subsidizing this for the energy consumers. The criticism now is why didn't the Moroccan government engage in public debate and negotiations or or maybe consulting Moroccan experts about the technology used? Because the technology used at the time is called CSP, concentrated solar power. And Given what we see now, I think it wasn't the right choice. It's still expensive. The project is still losing. It is being subsidized by the Moroccan government. And then the most important arguments about why these projects are not benefiting local communities is that it's built on the land of agro-pastoralist communities in that that land has been used for centuries, if not millenaries, as pasture land for herding animals, and it's like range land, a huge range land. And that land has been acquired by the Moroccan government and sold to a private entity called Mazam, which entered into contract with Aqua, the Saudi company. The acquirement has been dodgy and not transparent at all because local communities have not been consulted and their land has been taken away from them and sold to this company with a symbolic amount of money. And that money is put into an account, a development account at the Moroccan Interior Ministry, I believe. So even the communities do not have access to that money themselves. This is what some scholars call green grabbing, grabbing land, for the supposedly green agenda. So the people who have been using that land for a considerable amount of time, centuries or, or millionaries, suddenly you come and tell them this is an empty land. That's why I started with the colonial narrative. This is an empty land. It's not being used at all. And we're going to use it to produce value. That's what happened to these communities. There have been protests around this. There was a repression. Some people went to jail. But till now, the local communities are saying, where are the jobs? Okay, you came here, you did that mega project on our land, but we were not seeing the jobs materializing for our youth. We are not seeing the local development you've been promised. And this is similar to the fossil fuel projects, to the mining projects, the Morocco mining projects, phosphate, silver. So in other parts of the country, there are cases where people have been protesting against mines for a long time, claiming the same thing, jobs, local development, and less pollution. And when we we make the comparison, we see similar things. We see people being dispossessed of their land, and then they are not getting back anything to their local economy. No jobs, no local development. So this is the second argument. The third argument is even questioning the green claims about the project. Okay, it's producing renewable energy, but at what expense? That's what we need always to ask. What is happening? The project needs a lot of water to cool down the panels and to clean them as well from dust in in semi-desertic area around the desert. And that that water is coming from a nearby dam, and that water is mainly used for drinking water and agriculture. So for me to divert the water from agriculture and from drinking water to this project is hugely problematic. So we are creating another environmental issue. Yes, we are producing renewable energy on the land of people, dispossessing them, of course, And at the same time, using their water, and we know the region, all the region is extremely water poor, and using it for a project that is in deficit. And the same story, again, is happening in another project in Middlet. I didn't get to go there myself because of the pandemic. I really wanted to go. That project in Middlet, in central Morocco, that project is going to be functional this year, apparently. I don't know when exactly. But it's the same thing. They took the land of agro-pastoralistic communities. The project is based on debt. It's privately owned. There are a lot of claims around there. And the moment you scratch the surface, you find other problems. I think there are deep questions here that we need to grapple with. For me, I'm not against mega solar projects. I'm not against technology. These are needed in the transition towards renewable energy, especially in the current climate emergency, especially when there are alerts that we need to move fast towards renewable energy. There have to be certain compromises, but they cannot be at the expense of local communities. They cannot be at the expense of poorer countries in the global south. So we always need to ask the questions, who owns what? For what purpose are we doing this project? Is the energy, is it for whom are we producing it? Who decides on these projects? Are people being consulted or not? Are they being compensated for the losses if they are dispossessed of land and certain resources? Are they being taken into account? So all these questions are not being taken seriously at all in the current dominant energy transition that are being promoted by Europeans, by North Americans, by multinationals. It seems we are creating some new value chains, but this time, instead of fossil fuels, it's green energy. So we are moving just from an energetic system that has been based on fossil fuels to another energetic system that is based on renewables, which is good in itself, but we are maintaining the same practices of exploitation, of payage of resources, of authoritarianism, of excluding people from all these decisions. And this has nothing to do with a just energetic transition. It's not. That's why I use concepts like green grabbing, like green colonialism, especially when foreigners or Europeans get to decide for you. Like most of these projects, the ideas have been concocted in Europe. And then they come with lobbying. Of course, you need some complicit ruling classes, right? We cannot just blame everything on Europe or, or the Americans. You have, of course, corrupt and authoritarian ruling classes who benefit from this. And in Morocco, the king benefits from this.
0: I'm speaking with Hamza Homoshin about the impacts of Europe's pursuit of clean energy in North Africa on local communities and natural resources. We'll talk more after a break. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Stay with us. For those of you joining us now, I am Malihe Razulzan, and you are listening to Voices of the Middle East and North Africa on KPFA in Berkeley, KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. I'm speaking with London-based Algerian climate justice activist and researcher Hamza Homoshin about the development and production of green energy in North Africa and its impact on local communities and resources. In a recent article in Al Jazeera, he writes, During the colonial era, European powers set up a vast economic system to extract wealth, raw materials, and slave labor from the African continent. Although the 20th century brought independence to African colonies, this system was never dismantled. It was only transformed, often, with the help of of local post-colonial authoritarian leaders and elites. What's so ironic is that Morocco has been hailed as a leader in green energy. But uh, Morocco relies significantly on coal, 65%. Very little comes from renewables. Morocco has pledged to increase renewables in its electricity mix to 52% by 2030, because they missed their deadline for 2020, made up of 20% solar, 20% wind, and 12% hydro, even if they can accomplish this.
1: You know, at the time of the, the climate talk in 2016, at the time when they launched this, uh, what is that solar plant, and saying, oh, we are all great and we are all green, they were building a coal plant. One of the biggest coal plants in Morocco, they were building it in Safi, a town, a polluted town. Like there is a phosphate factory there. There is a cement factory. And then they built this power plant to receive coal at the time I heard from South Africa. But I don't know where they are receiving the coal from there. So at the same time, they are claiming to be green. They were doing this. So there are contradictions. So it is being sold to Moroccans. But as I told you, it is being subsidized because it's very costly. Six years down the line, the project is still losing money. Was it really a good idea to go and do this mega solar project? Was it really a good idea to contract $9 billion of debts? So all these questions, the Moroccan themselves or the Moroccan governments right now need to grapple with, Mm. but it seems they are going at it again with other projects. I mentioned the middle. And this is without going to the question of the occupied Western Sahara. Exactly. There are big wind farms being built there. There are solar projects being built there. By Siemens. Siemens and other companies. And all of this at the expense of self-determination of Western Sahara and without their approvals.
0: Have many people (laughs) been displaced as the result of the construction of these mega complexes in uh, Morocco?
1: Of course. Uh, first of all, when you build those mega projects, like the water that plan is 3,000. Middlet is around 4,000 hectares. First of all, that land, the agropastoralists cannot not use it. Mm-hmm. Some partners of mine in Morocco, Attack Morocco, did a uh, film with communities in Middle about their plight. And they were saying, our houses have been destroyed. We cannot herd our animals there, there are no jobs, and they described the project in these terms, an occupation, they said this is an occupation, we're not benefiting from it, they are taking away land from us, they are destroying our land, they do not let us herd our animals there, so what is the point of this project?
0: What has happened to the people who were forced out of their lands?
1: So I I think more research need to be to be done around this. But my assumption is because they are agro pastoralist nomadic agro pastoralist communities, they move towards other areas. Mm-hmm. The youth would become part of the urban poor, the urban lumpen proletariat, try to find jobs somewhere else. That what tends to happen in Morocco, especially from poor rural areas. That have been dispossessed by big projects, by mining, by. So people move towards other areas to become, you know, either a daily worker or, or maybe waiting to um, immigrate illegally.
0: So, where does this put the production of green hydrogen? Because apparently the Europeans are counting on Morocco to become a cheap and reliable source of green hydrogen for the future to reach their climate neutral status by 2050. So how okay. is this so transition happening? Let me
1: tell you a little bit about the EU EU's hydrogen strategy. The EU's hydrogen strategy is inspired by, you know, a paper by the lobby group that we mentioned earlier, the Green Hydrogen Europe. They did a paper called the 2x40 gigawatt green hydrogen. So the idea around this is that Europe would be producing 40 gigawatt green hydrogen itself from its electrolysis capacity, and the remainder 40 gigawatt would be coming from North Africa and Ukraine, so North Africa and Eastern Europe. And the main candidate so far, who is much more advanced in this, is Morocco, But there is a potential in other countries like Algeria, Tunisia, and Egypt. Egypt, I think, is trying to position itself right now in these discussions because the next climate talks will be held there in November 2022. So the country that is at the forefront of this is Germany. Germany is very active doing memorandum of understandings, funding research projects, funding pilots projects not just in North Africa, but in all the African continent. It has projects in the DRC, the Democratic Republic of the Congo. They are trying to build something there around the dam. So there is a dam there. So a lot of water that can be used to produce hydrogen. They have much more advanced projects in South Africa and Morocco. Morocco is the big player now because it signed a contract with Germany to build the biggest factory of green hydrogen in the continent. And Morocco is trying to position itself or is being seen as well by Desertec and other lobbies and the European Union as a hydrogen hub. Mm -hmm. So the idea if they can get most of the hydrogen coming from other African countries, to go to Morocco and then exported from there to the European Union, that would be great. So this is an idea that is being floated. And don't forget, Morocco, as you say, is much more advanced compared with other countries when it comes to the production of renewable energy from solar and wind. So if Europe wants to import green hydrogen, some of that renewable energy produced in Morocco need to go into the electrolysis of water to produce green hydrogen. And some numbers have been made and some infographics have been made around this. How much would Morocco need to produce, I mean, in terms of renewable energy, to cater for the needs of Europe? And it seems that we need around 62 times of the that plants to produce the amount uh, that Europe needs. And you need, apparently, if I remember the numbers right, around 2 million cubic meters of water.
0: And that's why Morocco is looking to extract the fresh water required from desalination plants. They're going to build desalination plants.
1: It's nonsensical Maria, it's nonsensical.
0: Desalination plants also have to be powered by yeah, of green electricity in order yeah. for it to produce green hydrogen.
1: That's the thing, that's why I say creating new value chains to accumulate profits and capital while dispossessing people and while creating other problems, creating social environmental problems. It's colonialism again. It's the displacement of environmental and social costs from north to south. So in the case of Desert Tech and even the EU hydrogen strategy, they say in the short term, we're going to produce blue hydrogen. So we need capture technology. Where are we going to store this carbon? In empty gas fields. So where are those empty gas fields? In North Africa, right? They are not in Europe. So displace all the issues there. And then the most important question is the water. As I said, all these countries in the region are water poor. And this question of water poverty is gonna exacerbate with the growing impact and worsening impact of climate change. We are seeing recurrent drought, recurrent heat waves, wildfires, so the water problem will become worse. So instead of preserving those water resources, thinking about how we safeguard the livelihoods of people and future generations, we are creating new problems. The desalination won't resolve the issue. It won't. It would, as you said, it would necessitate more energy. That's what happens when you think just about export, when you don't take into account the communities, their welfare, their livelihoods, when you don't have Democracy, simple as that. And democracy, I don't mean it in the bourgeois sense. I mean, you know, radical participative democracy where local communities are really involved in that process. And you cannot have that kind of democracy with the power of capital, with the power of capitalism. When we all think about is the short-term profits, all these companies and all these initiatives are not really interested, let's say it, in producing energy for people no they are interested in producing a commodity called energy that they can market to make profit that's what they are interested in we're not just
0: exporting energy in this specific case we are also exporting the water that we don't have in the region
1: Yeah, virtual water export and this virtual water export is already happening in agriculture So that's why I say, if we really want to change our energy systems, we need to change the economic system as a whole, because the the model of development, the model of economies in the region are extracted in nature, not just oil and gas or mining, but also agriculture. Tunisia, Morocco, Egypt, and to a growing extent, Algeria, are going for the export of cheap agricultural commodities that necessitate a lot of water. Tomatoes, strawberries, watermelons, and we have even plants that are being used in cosmetic products like jojoba in Tunisia. We have flowers that are being exported. All our agrarian models are extractive in nature to provide for Europe. And you're not exporting just agricultural commodities. You're exporting the water, as you say. The water that we don't have. That's the issue. If we had the water, <laughs> or maybe, but we don't have it. Water is life. Without water, civilizations would disappear. Livelihoods would be lost. Uh, communities won't survive. And it's happening again in renewable energy with the complicity of uh, the local ruling ruling elites. So there is
0: also Tunisia, like Desert tech and Puerzazat, a solar plant, or NOR in Morocco. Europe is also eyeing... Tunisia to import green hydrogen. Can you talk about what's happening in Tunisia?
1: Most of the green hydrogen plants are still in very early stages. So most of it is just torque apart from Morocco. Algeria has been approached by Desertec around this and and they simply said, we're not interested because they know that we're gonna continue selling oil and gas. That's what they are betting on. A lot of people, including multinationals, they are betting that we're gonna continue extracting and exploiting oil and gas. And that's what all the companies are doing. They are building new pipelines. They are still exploring offshore. They are still drilling. So that's the idea. That's what's gonna happen. There is no energy transition. It's just talk. Like in TNI, we said there is an energy expansion. There is still usage of coal. There will be still usage of oil and gas. They are just expanding a little bit with renewable energy. So in Tunisia, Germany also signed the Memorandum of Understanding with the Tunisian government to try to start some pilot projects to produce green hydrogen. And Tunur, one of the projects that I wrote about back in 2016, 2017, jumped on this occasion as well. They are interested in some pilots around green hydrogen. Just a bit of a background on Tunur. it was launched as well by some entrepreneurs, let's say capitalist business people from Tunisia, Malta, Italy, and the UK. So these people at the start in their website with the hype of Desert Tech, and they were saying, we're going to produce renewable energy from solar to export to Europe including to the uk that was their main objective from the start they changed this they always adapt you know to the current context and to and to the criticisms now they say okay we're gonna produce energy for local consumption local demand and then if there is an excess we're gonna export it but in reality they know where the money is the money is around export not local consumption at first They said, we're going to build a larger plant than the Warzazet plant in Morocco. I don't remember exactly how the surface was 4,000 hectares, but that did not take place. It has not been built for various reasons. They didn't secure the financing. Also, there was an issue with Tunisian law that does not allow foreign investors or foreign entity to own land. So that was blocking away. So Tunur is jumping on other smaller projects, smaller initiatives, collaborating with local actors and jumping on that green hydrogen bandwagon. I don't know what's the plan with Tunisia, but I know that Egypt is also interested in this. There is a huge propaganda. I watched in December the economic forum of the Egyptian state where the minister of the environment and energy was talking about all the plans that they're going to do. On paper, it sounds just great. They are building so much solid plants, so much wind. They are going to do a lot of clean hydrogen. But it's, again, who's involved, it's foreign companies, who's owning those projects. I don't think it's the Egyptian people. Are the Egyptian people benefiting I don't know. So all this need to be researched.
0: When it comes to Tunisia, do they have renewable energy, not the one meant for export to Europe, but renewable energy as part of their energy mix?
1: They have, but it's a it, small percentage. Most of the electricity still comes from gas and coal, but Tunisia is wanting to expand as well some of its renewable energy. I looked into some of the projects. They're not as big, nothing as big as what Morocco is doing. They have some wind farms as well, but not as ambitious as Morocco, to be honest. Morocco is like you could say is the exception in the region because it doesn't have oil and gas resources. Tunisia has to some extent. Algeria has a lot of it. Egypt has some of it as well. That's why they're not building as much.
0: How strong is the environmental justice movement, for example, in Tunisia?
1: That's a very good question, but it's a very complex one, I must confess. First of all, can we say that there is an environmental justice movement? Because, you know, we cannot just see the things from our experiences in Europe or in in North America, because there is an environmental justice movement, there is a climate justice movement, and they brand themselves in those terms. From my experiences, at least in the Maghreb countries, in Tunisia, Algeria, and Morocco, rarely that people call themselves an environmental movement. They use it sometimes as a bargaining chip. Of course, they talk about pollution. Of course, they talk about water, but it's always linked to socioeconomic issues. For them, you know, it's about justice. It's about the redistribution of wealth. It's about local development. It's about the sharing of wealth from these projects. Fundamentally, they are an environmental movement. That's why for me, I don't separate. I rather than call them at least the what I witnessed and what I've seen, rather than call them environmental activists or environmental activism. I call them as social environmental conflicts or socio-ecological struggles. There is an element, an environmental and ecological element in all of this, because we live through nature. We live with nature. We live in nature. We are part of nature. Of course, if we defend our livelihoods, we're going to defend our land. we can defend our environment and our water and resources. And these are you know, ecological elements. But people do not brand themselves, at least most of the, the movements and most of the struggles I witnessed. In Algeria, for example, when the anti-fracking uprising emerged, it's one of the inspiring uprisings. That was in 2014, 2015. Tens of thousands of people in the Sahara came against the fracking plants because they were scared about their water, about their livelihoods, but they were not branding themselves as environmental movements. It was, in a way, a social movement asking for the redistribution of wealth because it's linked to decades of dispossession and underdevelopment. And then they see these projects again coming to destroy their environments and to add more issues and more problems. So it's really hard to answer it. There are some in Tunisia who are branding themselves as environmental activists, especially with, with the entry of foreign NGOs, with international development agencies funding such projects and pushing certain agendas. Some people are branding themselves in those terms, but they're not the majorities. Usually, they are the exception rather than the rule. The other important point to say around this is, you know, the contradictions within those social movements. So, when they rise against certain polluting projects or even certain renewable projects that are dispossessing them. The short-term demands are usually about jobs, and this is even more problematic in destructive projects like mining, like oil and gas. And it's really hard to argue against that. People need jobs. People need material benefits to survive. For them, it's not about an idea of environmental justice. So, environmental justice, as I understand it, cannot be dissociated from socioeconomic justice. So, there is resistance, there are inspiring struggles. People are fighting, people are not just passive victims in front of this, but the challenges are really, really huge in front of authoritarian states. There is violence, there is repression. And then, you know, there are internal contradictions in those movements. Sometimes they are easily fragmented and co-opted, and they come back again. The example that comes to mind is there was this big social movement in southern Tunisia called El Kamur in Tatawin, an oil and gas rich region. There are a lot of foreign oil and gas companies in there. But you look at the local development, the young people do not benefit in jobs. So there was this movement that erupted in back in 2017. And it was quite radical at the start. They occupied the production sites. They stopped oil production. And they even the demands at the start were, we need to nationalize this oil. We need 20% of the oil revenues to remain locally. But then all these demands have disappeared when the, the negotiations started. So the governments and even the trade unions managed to buy the social piece. They offered certain jobs and there was fragmentation. But then that same social movement came back again in 2020 at the time of the pandemic because the demands are still not met because the same ingredients of the social explosion are there, local unemployment, poverty, and this is happening 10 years after a revolution that overthrown Zin al abidin ben Ali, but it seems at the economic level, nothing changed. I can venture with certain thoughts and reflections on this, even within my work at the Transnational Institute, where I coordinate the North Africa program, like one of my main objectives to produce more knowledge about the region from a critical point of view, from a political economy of view, looking at what's happening with certain projects, highlighting certain hierarchies and relations between North and South. This is the reality. There is not enough knowledge produced about the region overall, especially about my home country, Tunisia, Morocco. Like in the Anglo-Saxon world, there is no much, especially in the mainstream media. Like Algeria is barely mentioned. Tunisia as well, unless some Mm. violence happens. This is how the region is um, trapped in a kind of orientalist and racist cliches. Either it's violence or it's rich region in oil and gas or lush deserts. That's the imaginary about the region. Or people are not fit for democracy. They need the stick. We need the dictatorships in there to safeguard us from brutal Islamism, and from the hordes of immigrants coming to our shores. So there are all these dominant ideas. They are quite racist ideas about the region. And I think it's, it's part, I, I feel, of our jobs to change the narrative, to highlight the resistance of people, to highlight the struggles of people, to highlight their points of view, because there are a lot of points of views being produced in in the region but it doesn't get the attention needed and of course because we are based in the belly of the beasts where most of the projects is neo-colonial ventures and projects finding the funding and the lobbies and the support from multinationals and so and so forth i feel that part of our job is to highlight what these actors are doing what kind of agendas are, are they doing this is the minimum we could do really Hamza Homashin is a
0: London-based Algerian environmental justice researcher and activist. He's currently the North Africa Program Director at the Transitional Institute. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.
1: And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley.
0: You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And thank you for listening.